0: Hey there, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know about an upcoming CrossCut event that I think you might be interested in. On April 29th, Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily, that wildly popular podcast from The New York Times, will be keynote speaker at the Headliners Gala, the live in-person event that kicks off this year's CrossCut Ideas Festival in Seattle. The gala, in case you're wondering, benefits KCTS-9 and CrossCut. Learn more and get tickets at crosscut.com gala. This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. Today, we take a look at how one native nation in the Puget Sound region has been getting its ancestral land back and building affordable housing for its citizens. Crosscut Indigenous Affairs reporter Luna Reyna found that the Squamish tribe is using new federal funding to help make sure that its own members can again live in community on their own reservation. The fact that for many years the Suquamish tribe and its citizens owned less than half of the land on the reservation, and that some members struggled to afford housing there, is based in large part on forced federal assimilation policies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's also because of what the 21st century U.S. government has called broken promises. But now, between new funding, new efforts, and some new acknowledgment of the past, the Suquamish, along with other Native nations, are beginning to bring their people home. So Luna, um, you've recently been doing a lot of deep reporting on the issue of housing on tribal land, and specifically the work that the Suquamish have been doing um, both to reacquire tribal land and also to develop affordable housing for tribal citizens. And first off, I was just curious, how did you kind of get started on this reporting? How did you first hear about these efforts?
1: Sure. So I suppose for me, it hasn't been a secret that housing is a major barrier in Indian country. But specifically for the Suquamish, I received a press release from the tribe um, about the American Rescue Plan relief funds that they'd received, ARPA money, um, and that they planned on using it to house their citizens. My name is Luna Reyna. Um, I am unenrolled Little Shell Ojibwe. Uh, my grandfather was Little Shell Chippewa tribal member, and so was my mom and aunties and uncles. At Crosscut, I center the experiences, voices, and work um, of both urban and rural Indigenous people from both federally recognized and unrecognized Native
0: nations all over Washington State. And and briefly as, as just kind of an overview, what kind of housing support are the Sequamish working on right now? So they're doing
1: a lot actually. They provide um, mortgage subsidies, subsidized rental houses, rent-to-own homes. Um, They have a repair and maintenance program. They've also built some small studio homes and some tiny homes. And they even provide uh, financial counseling classes in order to help citizens
0: better qualify for a a home loan so that they
1: can get into housing.
0: And, And is all of that funding coming from new federal funding or is it kind of a combination of things? Do you know?
1: Oh, it's definitely a combination. These are programs that the nation has had going on. And so this sort of helped propel programs that they already had planned. They're allocating about $15 million from the American Rescue Plan to expand housing for their citizens and programs that they already had planned.
0: Mm -hmm. As you've reported, housing insecurity really disproportionately affects Native communities in the United States.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, what is your reporting shown?
1: I mean, if we're looking just at the numbers, over half a million Native households experienced severe housing needs, which is defined as living in conditions that are overcrowded, substandard, or cost burdened. And 8% of Native households are considered overcrowded compared to 3% for the nation as a whole. You know, HUD research also revealed that Native American households with incomplete kitchen facilities is seven times greater than the national rate, you know, and 70 percent of the homes in any country were in need of upgrades and repairs, most of them very extensive, you know. So there's, it's a broad
0: range of housing needs. Right. It's like housing affordability as in, for example, perhaps being able to afford rent or mortgage payments or something like that, but also in terms of housing in need of upgrades and repairs. Right. Adequate housing. You know, these numbers, they don't come out of nowhere. You've surfaced, for example, some national reports created by the U.S. government that basically acknowledge the role that the U.S. government itself has played in creating some of the circumstances that Native communities find themselves in. For example, a report by the United States Commission on Civil Rights says, I mean, you quote, The failure of the federal government to adequately address the well-being of Native Americans over the last two centuries. I mean, it's not only acknowledging that these are problems, but that these are problems based on failed commitments. Quite frankly, Broken Promises, I mean, the name of the report is Broken Promises. I wonder if you could talk about that report a little bit as it relates to housing.
1: When the United States government displaced Native people from our homelands and our people and made practicing our culture and our ceremonies of federal crime, housing programs were an agreed-upon treaty obligation of the federal government with each sovereign Native nation. So that treaty obligation has remained unfulfilled for the Suquamish and all across Indian country. I rise today to highlight the tragic shortage of suitable housing on tribal lands and to call for increasing funding for the highly successful Native American Housing and Self-Determination Act. In an effort to simplify the tribal housing development process, the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act of 96 was created. So it eliminated all the separate housing assistance programs that served Native American people and replaced them with the Indian Housing Block Grant. And tribes across the country. In the nineteen nineties, got around six hundred million to carry out their housing programs. That would be over one point one billion to each nation today. So tribes are actually operating with less money today than they were in the nineties to carry out housing programs. The Broken Promises report revealed the ongoing failure to fund this block program, and it just has consistently eroded the number of affordable housing developments each year. The the Broken Promises Report, this quote, I think, stands out really prominently. It says, the United States expects all nations to live up to their treaty obligations.
0: It should live up to its own. In terms of treaty obligations in specific, as they, you know, specifically apply to the Squamish... Can you talk a little bit about the Treaty of Point Elliott um, and what that did and kind of what happened after that? So the Squamish were only one of
1: more than 20 Native nations that were part of the Treaty of Point Elliott. So in
0: 1855, uh, the Squamish signed the Treaty of Point Elliott. And uh, we signed that at Mukilteo with a number of other tribes from the Northern and Central Sound. And um, Chief Seattle signed for us.
1: So the Suquamish gave up the title to their lands, which was most of what's now Kitsap County.
0: In exchange for us signing out the title of our land over, we agreed to move to a reservation. The reservation was provided for us, and also our treaty rights were reserved.
1: In exchange for the ceded lands, the federal government agreed to provide education, Medicare, housing, land rights, and fishing and hunting. And in negotiations for the treaty, Governor Stevens, he said, I quote, we want to give you houses and have homes so you'll have the means to cultivate the soil. In
0: 1887, well-meaning reform
1: And then the General Allotment Act, or the Dawes Act, was passed in, in an effort to sort of end traditional communal ways of living and further goals of assimilation by the U.S. federal government, and that way they could claim more land for white settlers.
0: It provided for each head of an Indian family to be given 160 acres of farmland, or 320 of grazing land. Then, all the remaining tribal lands were to be declared surplus and opened up for whites.
1: And so families were expected to move out to allotted lands to become farmers, which as community people for thousands of years who don't see land or people as things to be conquered and who knew just how abundant their lands were without farming it in a way that the their oppressor preferred, this didn't really work the way the government had hoped. <laughs> so when people refused to move to their allotments, and under pressure from angry settlers, the federal government seized, they would they called, surplus lands. Now, with the Suquamish, there wasn't much surplus lands, so that's when, you know, Indian agents came in and sort of seized lands in that way.
0: Yeah. For those who aren't familiar, who were these Indian agents? What were they doing? What was that role?
1: Once each nation was placed into their individual reservations these people called Indian agents basically a civilian authorized by the president who acted pretty much as an ambassador between the nation and um, the federal government they really took advantage of that role in order to in essence steal what they could from individual native citizens the Suquamish specifically you know many families were deemed quote-unquote incompetent for things like not being able to speak or read or write English you know these are this is a foreign language to them and their lands were auctioned off so Indian agents they were just granted you know sweeping power over to oversee you know the distribution of rations at the time manage tribal property and their finances you know if a landowner was deemed incompetent the agent would take guardianship over the land, and it could be sold at auction. And sometimes this happened without the knowledge of the landowner.
0: Wow. In terms of an example of what happened um, you know, to one person and her family, you spoke with Angie Harrington, who works at the Squamish Museum. And she has documents about what happened to her great-great-great-grandfather, can you tell me about that, her experience, her family's experience?
1: Yeah, I'm really grateful that she sat and chatted with me and shared a bit about what her family has experienced. Yeah, her, her great-great-great-grandfather, Chief William Rogers, he was born at a Duwamish village in what's now known as Renton. He moved from his traditional home on Black River to his land allotment on the Port Madison Reservation um, in 1902 after Duwamish longhouses and Renton were burned repeatedly by settlers. So in 1910, the Indian agent of that area petitioned for the sale of Rogers' land. But in in order to seize that land and sell the allotted land, every member, every family member had to be found incompetent. So the petition that Angie shared with me showed that the Indian agent alleged that her great 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 grandfather was addicted to alcohol and that his wife was incompetent because apparently she was unable to perform manual labor she was only 49 and their daughter alice who was just 18 she was also supposedly incompetent due to addiction to alcohol and their son was incompetent at just 25 for being quote (laughs) irresponsible and being obliged to remain at home to help his parents and is unable to find steady employment. And you can hear the, the drunken Indian stereotype being perpetuated in these old documents. So now, I mean, multi-million dollar homes run along what's the street, this is called Northeast William Rogers Road, uh, which is named after Angie's ancestor. So the Suquamish tribal chairman, Lawrence Webster, her great-great-grandfather, attempted to file a claim for violation of property interests. But um, they missed an arbitrary deadline by just two months. And so, yeah, it ended there, really.
0: I feel like something that really sticks out to me from your reporting is just that the result, one result, of these practices is that the Suquamish nation and its citizens have therefore owned a percentage, you know, to this day only of their own reservation. You know, you report um, at a low point the Suquamish nation and its citizens only owned about 30% of their own reservation. Um, in many ways, this process to kind of reacquire land... It seems it has been a, a long process for the nation. I mean, it really has been, it seems like, over over decades. I wonder if you could talk about that, like some of the, the land back efforts that you've reported on. Yeah. In recent years, a growing movement to reclaim what was once theirs has begun to form around the slogan, land back. As
1: awareness and relationships between the Squamish nation and local government sort of grow, there's been opportunities for returning land back. Commissioner Robert Gelder is actually, I chatted with him, and he told me that he's he's working with the Suquamish to transfer certain um, county-owned parcels of land and public right-of-way land within the reservation boundaries um, back to its original stewards. He, he wanted to do what he could, all that he could, to sort of shift and transfer whatever land he could back to Suquamish ownership. And there's also been um, a non-native Port Madison resident who's asked to remain anonymous, who's offered her deed, to deed her land to the Suquamish tribe when she passes. And other people have come to Suquamish before they sell their land on the market so that um, they have the first opportunity to buy it back. So there's a growing movement that you know the chairman said that he hopes will continue. And there's even another group of non-native Indianola citizens who call themselves the Indianola Good Neighbors. Um, and they, they definitely advocate within Indianola to, rep- to repatriate a land back to Suquamish as well.
0: And in terms of housing, too, so there's this dual effort happening as sort of reacquiring land and also developing new housing projects and housing opportunities. What are a couple of specific... Developments getting built right now on the Port Madison Reservation in 2018,
1: 36 acres of waterfront land was returned to Suquamish control, and so now that the nation is utilizing this land specifically for housing and community building with the support of the ARPA money, the Relief Fund money, they're building 22 to four bedroom townhomes called the Enetai townhomes, and so. This includes some common areas you know picnic tables, benches for community gatherings you know the waterfront is incredibly culturally important to Suquamish you know their name comes from the traditional Lushootseed phrase people of the clear salt water you know as fishermen canoe builders basket weavers, the proximity of the townhomes to the water is incredibly meaningful but now that, you know, they have this land back, it's also close to, you know, the Suquamish Museum, the House of Awakened Culture, which is the Suquamish Longhouse and Community Center. And there's actual open waterfront for Suquamish citizens to enjoy, you know, that they haven't really had access to for a really long time. Communal growth is a part of, rec- of reclaiming the land in community with other Suquamish citizens. That hasn't really been possible until now. And less than two miles from the townhomes is the Snooker Neighborhood Development, which is financed in part through over $2 million in ARPA funds. The Suquamish tribe bought a dozen lots off of Totten Road and are putting in the infrastructure, including roads, water, power, sewer, stormwater, and broadband connectivity. And then Suquamish citizens can build their own homes on these lots. You know, I spoke with Scott Crowell, the Suquamish Community Development Director. You know, he said that the really funding helped speed up their ability to implement big plans like the Snooker Neighborhood. But there's still, you know, at least 80 households still on the wait list for housing at Tribal Housing Authority. Mm. Are there
0: other um, tribes in the region doing anything similar that you've come across? One nation that I wrote about recently, the
1: Samish Indian Nation, is building their first, their very first housing project in Anacardis, what's now Anacardis. And, you know, there's a lot of federally recognized nations across the state that have received funding. So I'm sure we'll see more
0: innovative Native housing developments. You spoke with some representatives from federal agencies and nonprofit housing organizations for this reporting. And what did some of these people you spoke with who work on these issues say that we need uh, to help with housing security for Native communities?
1: Well, I think across the board, everybody I talked to agreed that increased funding is necessary When I spoke with Tony Walters, the National American Indian Housing Council's executive director, he said that he believes that at some point there needs to be a reckoning and the federal government needs to honor the treaties. And that's why groups like them have to keep the pressure on. But there's still a long way to go. I spoke with Sarah Sadian. She's the senior vice president of public policy and field organizing at the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And a big part of holding these federal agencies to account, according to her and folks that she works with, is that we need accurate data for each individual nation. And it's imperative that we get that on the most remote and impoverished nations across the country. It could help us better understand those needs and the funds needed to make sure that they're met so that you know, indigenous people are given the same opportunities as non-native communities. And really, it comes down to people understanding that Native people are still here and that this isn't a charity, that these are treaty obligations. And the folks that I spoke to all believed that... um, that's really imperative to progress at any level.
0: Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Luna Reyna and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. Our story editor and executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. You can subscribe to CrossCut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.